Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Our text before us this morning in Philippians has brought Christians throughout the ages great comfort, but other men have actually struggled deeply with this same text. Men that you have heard of from church history, men like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and many others. And so as we move through this, what I want you to remember is that the great Apostle Paul is not giving the church a summation of the gospel of Christ. That is not what he's doing. I want you to remember that Paul is challenging the Philippians to move on toward maturity in Jesus Christ and to complete the Christian race through the power of God working in us. If you feel over the past few weeks that you've been watching a little too much TV, maybe eating too many cookies, and you've gotten a little bit heavier underneath some of that clothing, you have nothing on these guys right here. They are a part of the ESPN Ultimate Couch Potato Competition. Yeah. In January of 2010, this guy, this man right here, Jeff Miller, he set the world record for the most hours of nonstop TV watching in one sitting. How sad is that? This was the third time he won the ultimate couch potato title, which he won by watching sports on TV for 72 hours straight without sleep. Here were the rules. The contestants had to stay awake the whole time. And they were only allowed three bathroom breaks in a 24-hour period. I would be out right there. That would take me out of the competition. They were allowed to stretch once an hour for five minutes. And here's what Jeff won for sitting there for 72 hours. According to the Chicago Tribune, quote, his superior sluggishness earned him a new recliner, I like that part, a $1,000 gift card for the purchase of a new TV, and the ultimate couch potato trophy. Perhaps the saddest part is not just that Jeff Miller won this competition three years in a row, but the saddest part to me were the words of Brian Hanover of ESPN when he said the following. He said, most people have no idea what it takes to win. They don't understand the endurance it takes to stay awake and control bodily issues. Jeff is uniquely qualified. He's an expert. Well, I am afraid that some Christians are becoming experts in being couch potatoes when it comes to their own spiritual growth in Jesus Christ. 
Because somehow Christians in our culture, in our country, in our mindset have gotten into this thinking. They've gotten it into their heads that all they have to do is sit around and, and maybe come to church an hour or two a month when it fits into their schedule, when it fits into their calendar. And automatically somehow they're going to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That God is going to automatically make them shine even brighter for Christ in a world that gets darker and darker and darker each day. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, where we find out how to become more like Christ and shine even brighter in this dark world. We start with verse 12. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is written to believers, written to Christians. This should be so obvious as you read the book of Philippians. Paul identified them as saints in the very first verse of the letter. Paul was no longer with them. He didn't know if he could return, but he wanted them to continue to obey. And do you remember what Paul told them back in chapter 1, verse 6? He said, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until what? The day of Jesus Christ. God had begun a good work in them, and he would be faithful to complete it. But what obligation does the Christian have? What obligation does the believer in Jesus Christ have? Here it is. See, if you want to become more like Christ, then you have to exercise your faith. Put in some effort. You have to work out your own salvation. Now, I want you to notice something very important in the text. I want you to notice, Christian, that it does not say work for your salvation. It does not say work for your salvation. Paul writes work out your salvation. Big difference here in the text. To work out was used to describe, this phrase back in Paul's day, was used to describe those who worked in the mines back then. The men were mining out of the ground something that had already been placed there by their creator. And so working out your salvation means to work out what God has already worked in. Do you hear that? You see, salvation is a gift from God, freely given. It's not something you work for. It's not something you could even work for. It's a gift you simply accept, receive from the Lord. But God didn't give you that gift just expecting that you do nothing for the rest of your life. He didn't give you the gift thinking, well, this is great. They can go home and just be rich, fat, and happy. His love is in you. His power is in you. His word has been given to you. And he wants something. He wants you to live for him in a relationship that is not based on rules and legalistic tendencies. It's a relationship based on love that should show itself in how you live your life. God wants you to take the gift he has given you and to work it out in your faith, to make it a part of your daily life. Now, it's been a few weeks, so let's put this all back into context. Paul had already said back in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in 
Christ Jesus. What was Paul talking about there? He's talking about humility, serving with the attitude of Christ. Paul said in verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of what? One mind. Paul was trying to bring the body of Christ together, centered on the humility of Christ, centered on the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Because when God rescued us from eternal damnation, it was not in his intention to just let us sit around and be filled with pride. It was not his intention to let us sit and fight in the church. There's a call to humility. There's a call to action, to love. But how? How do we do this? How do we live it out? How do we get the love and peace that God planted in us to grow? Well, it starts here. It starts with fear, Paul says. It starts with respect for God. You see, I think this. If you do not understand the holiness of God, and if you do not understand the righteousness of God, the power of God, and His authority, I doubt that you can ever live for God as He intends. There's no room for pride when it comes to God, because the more you study your Bible, the more you learn how powerful He is, how majestic He is, how great He is, and how frail we are. As a redeemed child of God, this doesn't mean you fear him so much that you're paralyzed in your faith, that you're crippled, that you can't do anything. Because what did Hebrews tell us? Hebrews 4.16 already told us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The fear we should have as the redeemed of Christ is more of a captivating fear that appreciates his grace, his work in our life, and this should motivate us to live for him. In the 2002 movie, Spider-Man, and we have officially put Spider-Man on the screen. That might ruffle a few feathers and excite other people. For those of you that don't know the storyline, I want you to just hear a few words from this movie. It's interesting. Peter Parker is in love with MJ, Mary Jane, right? And there's a scene in that movie that helps us this morning where Peter's trying to describe how he feels for MJ. And listen to what he says about the love of his life. Listen to what he says. Peter says, the great thing about MJ is that when you look in her eyes and she looks back in yours, everything feels not quite normal because you feel strong and weak at the same time. You feel excited and at the same time terrified. The truth is you don't know the way you feel, except you know the kind of man you want to be. And then Peter says this, it's as if you've reached the unreachable and you weren't ready for it. It's hard to describe. It's really hard to describe what it means to fear God. But that comes about as close as I've ever heard. Fearing God is a lot like falling in love. When we get close to Christ, when we, excuse the metaphor, look in the eyes of Jesus, we feel weak, but he makes us strong. We're terrified and at the same time more alive than we've ever been. And in him, we see the person that we want to become. The fear of God is meant to motivate us to live for him and for him. Get on board with the work that he's doing in our lives. 
And in verse 13, Paul goes on to say this. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, the only reason we can work out our salvation is because God works in us to make us willing and able to accomplish his purpose in our lives. Literally, the text is saying God energizes us. I love the Energizer Bunny Rabbit. That's one of my favorite all-time commercials. He's great. It is a lot like that. He's saying like the batteries inside the Energizer Bunny. Notice, God works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Meaning that God not only gives us the desire, but also the power to live in a way that pleases him. God works in us to help us as believers work out our salvation. Eternal salvation is a gift. That is not what we're talking about here in the text. This is the work God does in us after we have been redeemed in Christ. Spiritual transformation to become more and more and more each day like Christ. That's a long-term work that God is doing in your life. It involves both God and us. I liken it to crossing an ocean. Imagine that you're going to go across the ocean, if you would. Now, some people try day after day to be good, to become spiritually mature. That's like taking a rowboat across the ocean. It's exhausting, and it doesn't work. It doesn't get you there. Others have given up trying, and so what do they do? They throw themselves entirely on relying on God's grace. They're like drifters on a raft. They do nothing but just hang on to that raft and hope and hope and hope and hope that God gets them to the other side of the ocean. Now, we know that trying to row on our own does not work, and drifting doesn't work. Neither one is going to transform us to become more and more like Jesus Christ in how we live. A better idea is this, the sailboat. Because if the sailboat moves, it's a gift of the wind. We cannot control the wind. But if you know what you're doing, you can see which way the wind is blowing, and you can adjust your sails. And Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus compared the work of the Spirit with the wind. And so here's what we learn back in verse 13 of our text. God expects us to discern the direction of the work of God, the Spirit of God in our life. God expects us to learn His Word. He wants us to learn the direction He wants us to take in life from His Word. And God expects us to learn how to use the tools, the sails, if you will, that He has given us to take us on the journey of growth in his amazing grace. This is the transformation that he's looking for. The Spirit of God is blowing. He's working in us. But if you ignore the wind, you aren't going to go anywhere. If you ignore the work of God in your life, you're not going to go anywhere. You're just going to keep just drifting and drifting and drifting in your faith, never growing, never becoming what God intends. So learn to put up those sails. Learn to use what God has already given you. This is how you work out your salvation. Learn to work with God in your life. Paul says that God works in us for his good pleasure, 
Meaning that God doesn't want you to just sit around and drift in your faith. God doesn't want you to just sit there and be the same person day after day after day. God is not going to bless a life of one of his people just living in complete disobedience to him. Is he Christian? He's talking to you and he wants to partner with you to help you live a life that reflects your position, your identity in Christ. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the farmer who was out in a field and the pastor of his church stopped by. And the pastor said to the farmer, he said, this is a great farm that you and God have here. And the farmer said back, well, thank you very much for saying that, but you should have seen it when God had it all by himself. Well, the farmer didn't mean any disrespect. He was simply pointing out how God works in his redeemed, how God works in his people. He works through us. Verse 12 in Philippians is obey. Verse 13 is that God gives us the ability to obey. Hear me when I tell you this, that God will not do for us what we should be doing for ourselves in the Christian life. That's a very important principle that you need to understand. God will not do for us what we should already be doing for ourselves in the Christian life. Here's what I mean by that. God's not going to force you to read the Bible, but he'll give you the desire and the ability to discern what he's saying. He's not going to make you witness and share your faith. But the love of Christ should compel us. So Christians, learn to yield to him. And then let this be the day when you begin to live by his power, by his word. See, too many Christians today are running around trying to obey God because of the pressure on the outside, by rules, not by the power from the inside. Verse 13, in a lot of ways, should be one of the most comforting verses in the entire New Testament for the believer in Jesus Christ, because it tells us that God will help us to live for him. Meaning there are some times in our faith when we want, as Christians, we want to do the right thing, but we lack the motivation. This verse assures us that God will help us. And other times, we're not even in the right mental mindset. We're not even in a good place where we want to do the right thing. But Paul tells us God can give us that desire when we don't have it. Meaning it is the right thing to do to ask God to work in us. It is right to ask God to give us the desire to follow him. Paul believed in the power of God to work in his people. He said this in Ephesians 3.20, he said, Now to him who? God. Now to Christ, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. And so look at how Paul applies it to the church, starting in verse 14 of our text in Philippians. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. You see, these words speak right to the heart of where we are at, living in a dark world. Paul says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, here is how I want you to live as Christians. He's saying, don't complain. Don't worry about protesting. Don't curse the darkness. It's so easy to blame others when we fail. It's so easy to blame others when we make a mistake or we sin. But there's one key reason that we as Christians fail. 
that we fail to experience the freedom and joy that Christ offers. It's not that someone else is preventing you from living a life centered on Jesus Christ, a life filled with the joy of Christ. It is that we are our own worst enemy to our own spiritual growth. Max Lucado, the author, was talking about the time that he was trying to run in a triathlon, and they had to swim for 1.2 miles. Then they had to bike for 56 miles. That's a long ways. That is a long ways. And then they had a 13.1 mile run ahead of them. And Max is running along in this race and he's tired. He doesn't have a lot of energy left, but he's running. And he see, asked the man next to him, he says, how are you doing? And Max soon regretted asking that question because all that this man could say was, this stinks. This race is the stupidest, dumbest idea I've ever had in my entire life. And this man had more complaints than a taxpayer paying the IRS. So what did Max do? Well, he just said goodbye to this man because he knew if he started listening to this guy, he would start agreeing with him. And then he caught up with a 66-year-old grandmother, and her tone was just the opposite. He pulls up alongside of her as he's running, and she says to him, you're going to finish this. It's hot, but at least it's not raining. One step at a time. Don't forget to hydrate. Stay in there. Max said he ran with this old lady as long as he could. His heart was lifted and his legs were hurting and he finally had to slow down because he couldn't keep up with her. And she said, no problem, as she just waved and kept on going. Don't we see that same problem in the church today? You see, there's plenty of grumpy frumpies in the church, this church, every church, who complain about everything. And we can either listen to them but it's going to bring us straight down. Or we can find those who are looking to encourage one another to run the race for Jesus Christ. If you look in the scriptures, you find that God hates complaining. You can see it with the people of Israel in the wilderness, in the, in the promised land. And he hates it in the church when people sit and just complain. What is a complaining attitude. It's actually a lack of gratitude. It, it denies the sovereignty of God. When God's people sit and just complain and grumble, it, it shakes your fist in the face of God and it questions his love and his wisdom. To complain in the church, it breaks up unity and it dishonors our testimony for Christ. I, I really believe you can't be thankful to Christ and complaining at the same time. What do we come here for? We come here to worship God. We come here to praise God for the riches that we have in Christ, not complain. We come here to teach others by how we are living and from the word of God that he has made a way possible for us to draw near to him, to live for him. We come to encourage others in their faith. We come to encourage others by the example that you have become in Jesus Christ. See, God is working in our lives. We come to share that testimony with others. We come to praise our God, our creator. We come to hear truth from the word of God. And that should change how we live. We come to remember his sacrifice for us. We come to encourage one another because life, life is hard. And if you don't know that yet, some of our young people, you will learn that someday, won't you? Life is hard. Maybe it's health problems. 
money problems, conflicts in families. We have the opportunity as a body of Christ to come together and to be an encouragement to one another. And that is part of what being a part of the church is all about. And to be honest, you see, I think, and I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but I think when people come to church just when they feel like it, they really fail to appreciate what God is looking to do in their lives. They fail to appreciate what God wants to do through them in their lives, in the lives of others. Being a part of a church family is absolutely irreplaceable. There's always going to be competition for your time. There will always be competition for your time. But God has designed it so that we live together, we serve together in Him. And so Paul says here in the text, when you come together as a church, don't just sit back and grumble. Don't just sit back and complain. Don't have an attitude and grumble about it. Don't dispute over foolish things. Certainly contend for doctrine, contend for the gospel of Christ, don't water down the word of God, but foolish disputes, things like paint colors on a building, gossip or pride, just avoid all those things, get rid of them and be done. And the reason is found in verse 15, because in Christ, in position, God already sees us as pure, but he wants us to become in practice what he has made us in position. God wants our lives to start matching our position. So he says, be without blame, be harmless, be without fault, be innocent, shine as lights in the world. He's not talking, rest assured, he's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about the entire testimony of us as a church, as a group of believers. So how do we do this? Verse 16, it says, hold fast, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the gospel message. Hold fast to the word of God. Because Paul said, if they do this, it would give them a reason to rejoice on the day of Christ's return. Paul was telling them that when he stood before Jesus Christ, he didn't want to see that all his work over all those decades among them had been useless. Paul had stood faithful. Paul had run the race. Paul was the very first one that we know of to bring the gospel to Philippi. And he had confidence in their redemption. But he wanted God's people to be different from the lost and dying world that is out there. Like a, a parent that's proud of a child, Paul wanted to be able to boast over his children and say, look at what they're doing. They're following Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is getting at in these verses. He's saying, Christians, our lives should be different. We should be living differently than the world. And Paul wanted to celebrate this at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is saying, God is working in you, Christians, so be obedient to him because that is when we will find his joy in our lives. The world is going to keep on complaining. The world is going to keep on being grumpy. The world is going to keep on being unhappy. We should be different. The world is going to be corrupt. We know that. They're going to lie. They're going to steal. They're going to cheat. They're going to do everything they do. That's what the world does. They're going to be dishonest. We should be different. The world is just going to keep on going down that direction. But we, as Christians, should be without blame. They live in darkness. We're to shine the light of Jesus Christ, even when it's hard. Verse 17, Paul writes, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. 
If anybody had a right to complain, it was Paul. If anyone had a right, it was him. But what I love about the Apostle Paul is that he was always the example of what he preached. He didn't just say, take up the mind of Christ. Paul actually lived it. Paul is using something from the Old Testament here. He's using the drink offering of the Old Testament as an illustration of his sacrifice and service to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the priest would offer a a lamb, a, a ram, or a bull as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, this sacrificial animal, having been killed and totally consumed upon the altar, would represent the worship of the people. But then there was another offering where a cup of wine would be poured out upon the altar and on the sacrifice that was already burning. And the altar was already hot, so the wine would go up in a puff of smoke and be gone. And this was the last act of the sacrifice, which was meant to show the dedication of the believer in their worship. And so Paul is saying to the church, he's saying, look, I know you're worried about my situation. I'm in prison. I could be executed at any moment, but my life here is not the important thing because it's your faith that really matters. Your faith is the main offering. My life, he says, is just the drink offering that is poured out at the end that goes up in a puff of smoke. You see, Paul, he viewed his own death as less important than the spiritual needs of the other believers. Boy, is there a lesson there. Even if you die, he would rejoice at his sacrifice. His life lived for Christ had made a difference in the lives of others. And so by his example, Paul is saying, choose to work out your salvation with joy. Choose to rejoice, even when it's difficult. Be glad when everybody else has a reason to grumble and complain because you are living for Jesus Christ. And no matter what the world takes away from you, it can never hold on to this truth. It can never take away the reward that you will have in glory for serving Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's not asking you to fake this joy. He's not looking for you to put on a fake smile. Paul is just saying, this should be the heart of the redeemed living in submission to Christ. Paul chose to rejoice, even though he was at a point where his life may be ending. And Paul invites us to live this way, no matter what it is that we are facing as Christians. And so Paul told the church, don't look at how much I suffer for Jesus Christ as a reason to be sad. Rejoice, take comfort from the example left behind, because in his life, Christ was glorified. Here is a man that figured out this. The main purpose to life is to serve Jesus Christ. I think God is still teaching this lesson today. Let me take you to the small country of Togo in West Africa. Be glad you do not live in this country. This is a violent, corrupt place to live. One of the poorest countries in the world. But there's Christians living there. There are Christians living there. Late one night, this man, Emmanuel Lai, returned home to find the police waiting for him. There was a death in the local village, and somehow his name had topped the suspect list. He was cuffed, he was detained, and Emmanuel was questioned well into the night at the police station. He was refused the right to leave. Hours became days, then weeks. Emmanuel remained at the police station and then was transferred to the civil prison in Lomé. This is another place 
that you do not want to go. It's the main prison in the capital city of Togo. He remained there for five years and four days, but Emmanuel, he was innocent, completely innocent. Now, this is a dangerous place to spend any time because human rights are not even thought of. They're just neglected. It was built to house 500 inmates, but the prison is packed with over 1,800 inmates in there. Disease is widespread. Many of the prisoners die before they've even served their sentence. Emmanuel spent half a decade of his life in prison, always hungry, always scared, always wondering how he, as an innocent man, landed in this place. People are assaulted all the time in this prison. Violence is common. And for years, members of the Bible Society of Togo, they visited this prison, bringing in food for the inmates and giving them something even more important than that bringing in the life-giving gift of the Bible. And for Emmanuel, as he began to read it, it became a, a source of life for him, a source of hope, and it inspired him to reach out to other inmates, spreading the word of God in one of the darkest places on the earth. Now, Emmanuel, he struggled to understand why he was still being held in prison, but God began to teach him that his life, and here's something we all need to learn, his life was not his own that God had him there for a purpose, to reach the other inmates for Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, much like Paul so long ago, began to thank God for bringing him to prison, knowing that he could not be ruled by any man. And once this man was finally cleared, once his name was finally cleared after five years, he made the decision that his greatest joy would be found in continuing his ministry it's been said that inside those walls, Emmanuel has become the real breathing picture of God's hope. One soul at a time, a prison that is being transformed from the inside out because Emmanuel shares the message that a clear conscience fears no accusation and that there is true freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm telling you. When you make your life purpose to live for Christ by the power of God working in us, it changes. It changes your perspective. Don't be the Christian who's stunted in your growth. Don't be the same person year after year enslaved to sin, to the same bad habits and same temptations in your life. Christians are not meant to be pew potatoes or spiritual dropouts. God actually wants you to grow, not be stuck in that same place in your faith. So work out your salvation with fear. Work out your salvation with the light of Jesus Christ in you and work out your salvation with joy. Out of an awesome respect for Jesus Christ, choose to praise him rather than complain about whatever it is that you're going through. This world is already filled with so many people who complain. This world is already filled with people who live for themselves, which is why Jesus Christ said this in Matthew 5 to his disciples, and we'll close with this. He said, you remember the words, he said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then what did he say? He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So hold fast to the word of life, knowing that God is looking to work in us to bring glory to our Father in heaven. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, 
please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.